Welcome to Restoring Memory, a COVID Calls exploration of the first two COVID years. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters, and since March 16th, 2020, I've been the host of COVID Calls, which is a daily discussion of the pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. This is episode number 495, March 17th, 2022, Dance in the Pandemic with David Brick. just going to take a moment here to introduce David Brick. David Brick is artistic director and co-founder of Headlong Dance Theater, a platform for performance research and grassroots artist support founded in Philadelphia in 1993. He also directs the Headlong Performance Institute, a supported residency and training program. David collaborates broadly in making dance, participatory installations, and community. The experience of growing up as a hearing person in a deaf family continually influences his thinking about performing bodies as being both subjects and agents of culture. His writings about art practice as a form of thinking and experience can be found on the Quiet Circus blog. David Brick, welcome back to COVID Calls. Hi, Scott. It's so nice to be here after, after so much time and with things still happening. I know it. I know it. And um, it's really special to have you back in these last few of the COVID calls, or at least this this part of the COVID calls as they get to 500. I can't thank you enough for making time. It's a, a, I can't believe I can't believe you managed to keep going this whole time. And the three shows that I've done, like this is the third one, they're actually... I think it's like how you want it to operate. Like it's a little bit of an archive for me because I remember talking with Ishmael, you know, and that was so early in the pandemic and it was all so fresh. And then Aka when we were really like, this is, we're in for the long haul. And now whatever this is now, I, I just really talking to you now, I feel that. I feel the passage of time. It's really how we talked about it, isn't it? And, yeah. and, and I think, you know, just to reconstruct some of that, and I'm sure you remember it, but just to set out the context a little bit for folks, I mean, you and I met, I'm trying to think the last time you and I met in person, it must have been at Drexel University in 2019. And we were talking about um, my plan then, which was to have a disaster school in Japan in the summer of 2020. And Eiko Otaki was going to be part of it. And we were really talking about, um, you know, visiting Hiroshima, visiting Fukushima Prefecture, artistic elements, historical elements. I, I remember so clearly that, that meeting. We were at the, the coffee shop there on the campus. And then that, do you remember that? I mean, I, re I remember, I remember really vividly and I was so excited to think about this, you know, cause you're like, I don't know, what could you do? You know, cause <laughs> you know, it's like an academic and historic, you know, his history, you know, I think, you know, it's like a, 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 a kind of a way in on disaster from being in specific places. And um, I was like, this is awesome because uh, I was like, I'm going to design contemplative, experiential 
interactions with sites, with history, with uh, with our group. And I was just so, you know, I don't, I, I, I look for opportunities and don't have them very often where I can apply choreographic and um, kind of performance ways of thinking to other modalities and other, because that's where I think it belongs. I think we live in a weird moment where art has been extracted from, <laughs> from all the other parts of life and, and, and critical thinking. And, you know, so that's sort of on a mission to, to put, you know, artistic, to see artistic practice as ways of thinking that are complementary and, and a part of all kinds of other um, ways of thinking and, and research. And this was this amazing opportunity to, to put that in, to put that into practice in a way that I'd never had before. Well, um, I'm still enthusiastic about it. <laughs> and, and, but it's been, you know, the opportunity to have you on this is the third time it has in some ways, you know, as you said, it's been a way to kind of have a bit of an archive of, of the calls and the passage of time in between. Um, and I wouldn't change that. I'm happy for that, yeah, but I've, yeah. I've thought back and I was like, wow, but really would have loved to have been with you and a bunch of students and other scholars and everybody in Japan. So let's not lose that idea. Let's keep, let's do that. Yep. I okay. agree. So, let me go back a little bit, um, and we did talk uh, July 28, 2020, uh, you and myself and Ishmael Houston-Jones, and I just want to set the stage a little bit. At that time, there were 148,298 deaths from COVID reported in the United States, which seemed like, an, to me, an impossible loss, just incomprehensible loss. You and, and uh, when you were on with Ishmael, you did a talking dance. And I wonder if you could say a little bit, maybe you kept in touch with him. Have you all talked about? Um, I said Ishmael last week. Ishmael really? was, was in person in my house. And uh, that was incredible, uh, you know, to feel like, in the, you know, starting to see people in person um many people who i haven't seen in person for a very very long time and ishmael is one of those people and ishmael came and taught in person in um had the headlong performance institute which there's this program i run it's like a residency uh and and training program that supports artists um he taught virtually last year and this year he came to Philadelphia and, and, and taught, um, uh, he came and he came, he, he'd just been in Chicago performing with Eiko, Eiko Otake. Um, and the two of them are performing, uh, in April, um, uh, in New York at the Skirball Center, NYU Skirball Center. But, um, he had, so we had tons to talk about and, uh, it was just so meaningful to see him in person. Yeah. Because we we had yeah. this like longing virtual dance, right? Exactly. You know, yeah. On 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 COVID calls where we yearned to, to see each other and you know in the flesh and in in that dance, um, which was a, a you know a, a, a choreographic improvisation talking dance. Um, in that dance, um, 
my body flies to New York and peers in to the window of Ishmael's apartment and like kind of like waving plaintive, plaintive, plaintively at him. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, that was it was really wonderful, but it was really harrowing, too, because it was you were thinking that summer of 2020. And, and not only was the death total to me incomprehensible, but the distance that the inability to be physically close to people, except for whoever was in your pod, was really taking a toll on people. And I don't think, maybe I didn't understand up till then the, the toll it was taking on artists until I saw you and Ishmael together. And then you had to continue in that kind of seclusion. I, I wonder if you could reflect on that a little bit. I mean, as a person whose artistic practice has been really essentially, even if you're performing alone, you're still with people in community constantly and then to have to drop out of that do you have a sense of what the toll of that was at this point uh i don't know if i do but i can definitely talk about it i mean i don't know if i have a sense of the true magnitude and ramifications of it um and i feel like my experience is super ordinary and super gentle compared to a lot of people's experience um but maybe that's just you know that's how we think about hardship because <laughs> it's been a really hard time I, I would say um i've made a lot of personal discovery and one of one of those i i've felt extremely isolated from other people and you know i have a very robust i've had a very robust community um of people and i remember in the first year of the pandemic there was lots of like shouts out from people like i can't believe we haven't seen each other or had a meaningful conversation but then like after the second year it's sort of like i have lost contact with people who are dear to me and and it feels painful and um i also i've had i i'll be i'll just be really honest it's been very hard for me to to work to you know to 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 you know the kind of emergency i i run a small arts organization and we we most we we really relied on earned income that all went away you know we we had studio rentals and we had artists apartments that were short-term rentals and um so i you know i became for the for the last two and a half years i've been like raising money to just hold on to our building to um not lay off any staff I'm, I'm i'm glad to say we haven't laid anybody off and we have held on to our building but it's been week to week like literally like week to week talking to my board members being like i think we're gonna have to let the lease go next week and then something comes through and we're like we got another month <laughs> um and and I, i'm kind of talking i'm, I'm you know my my ADHD way, but um, the crisis of that being kind of navigated from like a desk and a computer um, has been extremely hard. And I feel like even though I'm like, we did raise the money and we did actually, you know, get, you know, go through these onerous banks and forms and figure out how to apply for PPP funding. And thank you, you know, U.S. government for that funding. Um uh, and, and different kinds of things, even though we made it through as a team, um, 
I always had the feeling that I was moving through mud, that I was like, I mm. should be able to get this done so much quicker and I should be able to um, just feeling constantly inadequate in a way that I don't often feel, you know, and just feeling like I, I'm not working efficiently. I'm not working well. Everything is like climbing a mountain. And Thankfully, I've talked to a lot of artists who are like, yes, we all feel the same way. <laughs> and not just artists. People are just like, everything is hard right now. Every simple thing seems really hard. And that's been reassuring to me to hear. For me specifically, I just feel like I'm wired for, for social interaction. Like my writing work and my administrative work and my um, kind of the work of running a, you know, a, a, a small arts organization that my creative impulses to make and perform, they all flow when I'm interacting with people, you know, around yeah. their work, around my work, when I'm, you know, when I'm just the abstraction of just thinking about things and imagining things without the doing feels literally 10 times harder and 10 times slower. So the Headlong Performance Institute just started back up. There's been two moments in the pandemic where I was with other people, you know, the moment before Delta and Omicron kind of took over, there was that like brief opening, right. you know, uh, and uh, I, I can talk about that. I, I actually re, redirected a, 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 um, a performance that was um, related to another disaster, the 9-11 for, for the 20th anniversary. I did it 15 years ago with Pig Iron Theater Company. I made this this project um, uh, that took as its setting and its meditation the events of 9-11. And then, um, you know, we reprised it for the 20th anniversary of 9-11. And so, in that moment where we were like, well, we're all vaccinated and we can get into a studio together. And it was just like the, 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 the dams had bursted and we were, <laughs> yeah. you know, like suddenly I can do so much. I can write my, I can write grants and I can think and I can contact people. And, you know, everything was like moving just cause I was like going into a studio and rehearsing with other human beings. Like everything like opened up, um, inside of me as well as as well as outside of me and then again hpi just started three weeks ago uh in philadelphia and we're in person with a regimen of vaccination and weekly testing um and so we're in the studio again and suddenly everything's moving like everything's ha you know like i'm i'm in terms of just like me getting work done being in touch with people being able to think well you know so i yeah uh, yeah yeah well, thank you for sharing that, David. I, let me ask a little bit more about that because, you know, in the last couple of weeks, um, I had the chance to have, I had uh, Kurt Brownoller on. Kurt's a comedian, long, longtime friend of mine. Mm -hmm. And I had, um, I had John Gorka on just a couple of days ago, his singer songwriter uh, on. And it's interesting. Mm -hmm. And now to have you here to talk about, you know, really intensely creative people talk with you um, and about the, just and they said in kind of different ways but almost exactly what you've been saying and for kurt i think people don't understand this about comedians um you know what you're seeing when you see them on a stage as a finished product 
that could have been a very long time in the making of interaction with audience. And only they know when it's actually working the way that they want it to work. So, you know, the being on the road and working in clubs and doing stand-up comedy is a lot about performing, but also about listening to audience. And, you know, John Gorka is similar. He's a performer who really, I think, relies a lot on feedback from, from the audience. Now, it's not that they didn't try to adapt online to still meeting their audiences. Um, people have to survive. But I wanted to ask you about that in terms of dance, because so what did you miss? Is it the, is it the actual having to be in three-dimensional space and the sort of tactile experience of your body in relation to other bodies, which helps you express what you're trying to get across? Is it more just about the, being in the community of other creative people and having kinds of conversations that creative people, choreographers and dancers have? Or And maybe it's not fair to deconstruct it like that. I, it's okay if you don't want to, but I am sort of curious, like what when you got back in that space in the summer of 2021, what was it that it really enabled? Yeah. So I, I, I think about this a lot. I'm like, what happened? It's so intangible and it's hard to point to, you know, and I feel like we live in a Cartesian world where it's like, it's hard to name anything as important. That's not something that you can analytically point to. You know, I'm like be like, you know, this causes this effect, right? Um, but so much of the actual work I do is not in the Cartesian world. <laughs> it really is, you know, like the practice of learning to touch, to trust invisible processes, wiggly things like, you know, sensation and intuition. Um, you know, I feel like there's an intelligence around these things that that I get to practice and the people I, I work with, we have different ways of talking about it, but those are some of my words for it. Um, I feel, so a couple things, a couple things. I think that, um, I think the, the action of doing stuff in what, you know, in my body, across space with other people, um, it just puts all kinds of information that's in my head or, you know, in my mind body, puts all of that information into play, right? It's not even stuff that's completely relevant to the moment. It's just like things are in play. Um, and so, I, you know, when it comes to like writing a grant, when it comes to like um, thinking about a friend who I should reach out to, like there's like, think like, you know, you can kind of imagine like, I don't know, like papers are all stuffed away in cabinets and you have to think of like, where's that paper? And if I can't think of the paper, then the thought is lost, right? Or the person is lost or the, the idea or the connection or the project is gone. If I can't find the cabinet and pull the paper, but when you're, when you're dancing and moving, when you're uh, doing what I, I call thinking through doing, which is what dancing is, it's like the papers are all flying all around you all the time. You know, you're just like constantly touching and looking at a lot more things. And it just makes the work of getting anything done a lot easier for my, for me, it comes, it comes of itself. Right. Whereas when I'm, when that, when the paper's not flying around because I have to think of it in order, I have to think and name something in order to do it. 
I get a little bit paralyzed. I'm like, what's the thing? Okay, there's 27 things that are all important. Which one is the one I'm going to concentrate on now? Because that mm. is the most important. Is it the most important? And it's just a crawl to get to the place where you're actually doing anything. But when I come back from a day of rehearsing, like while I'm rehearsing, I'm like, oh, I should do that thing. And as soon as I get home, I'm like, da, 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 I do that thing or I'm on my lunch break. Mm. So things are in play mm-hmm. in a way. And the other thing that I've been thinking a lot about that I feel like must be true, whether you're involved in an embodied practice or not is um, something about the crossing space itself like crossing geography like something about traveling from here to there is really good (laughs) you know like so like during the pandemic I don't have a lot of like reason to leave my house you know like I'm like here trying to do work, you know, like I'm like putting off going out because I need to get work done and I'm not getting work done. So I keep sitting here, but something about having a place to go and just, yeah, you know, I almost think it's like, you know, I think about Buddhist philosophies of space and the importance of space itself, you know, like there's something about traveling across geographies that again, puts things in play. It puts, puts, it's like it, it puts us in action it, you know, I'm thinking clearer. I'm thinking more expansively. I'm, I'm not enclosed. You know, I'm like, I'm like in the world, literally in the world. Absolutely. I mean, I think it's so relatable because, I mean, when I lived in Philadelphia, um, I walked from Seventh and Fitzwater Street to Drexel University campus. It's about a forty-minute walk. Mm. It, was a, it was the perfect increment of time to have a thought. Like that was just exactly the amount of time I needed to like work a thought, something that I might then write that day or teach, whatever it was. And then for years I was traveling from Princeton and it was in this train ride, a little bit longer than that. And there's and there was walking on both sides. But I got I really missed that when we went into lockdown. Yeah. Because I had become habituated to having a period of time in motion fit my feet, but then in on a train in different kinds of spaces. And you have, I guess I hadn't really thought about how much I missed that till I was just, till you were just talking. And I'm not, I'm not a dancer. I'm not a choreographer. I have a very poor understanding of my own sort of body and space in the way that, that you do. But even at my level of it, it really mattered. The deprivation of that really mattered. I mean, I, you know, the one Silver lining in the pandemic is I've listened to a lot of podcasts and, um, you know, there's, I've listened to a lot of, uh, at least a couple really profound programs talking about our models of, um, you know, like Western models of the mind and how deeply flawed they are, you know, and like, um, uh, I'm thinking of, I, I can't think of the researcher. He's like a neuro neuroscientist but she she was talking about um you know like like our i the model of the mind is is like a computer like that's the the kind of western model i'm being super reductive but um in fact like having a thought whether we're like sitting close to somebody else whether we're sitting alone whether we're there's you know the light is in our eyes whether you know we're in a darkened space like 
our thinking functions differently in all of those situations, you know, mm. like we are very sensitive and responsive. And then of course I feel like so many creative people talk about like the walk <laughs> as like, if you take my walk away, I can't think about anything anymore. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, and I do think there is something about crossing space, your body in, in, in action, you know, like, you know, you're, we don't just think, uh, you know, I'm pretty convinced we just don't, we don't just think with our, brains like we're thinking with our whole bodies there's aspects of thinking and knowing that happens throughout our whole body and so to be engaged with that and the other thing i'll say maybe particularly about like what i think my insight as a as a choreographer as a director as a as a performer is that often has to do with um finding relationships between seemingly dissimilar things Right. Like I, I find I find connections between things that maybe, you know, most other folks don't 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 find those connections. And that's kind of my stock and trade. That's like, you know, like that's what I think I have yeah. to offer the world is being able to make those connections. Um, and again, like if the papers aren't flying around, <laughs> then yeah. I'm not able to pull things together. I'm kind of stuck with the limits of my like kind of, you know, conscious. Uh. Yeah. mind you know which is i feels like very limiting wow david that is is really such a powerful idea that so so that you need to there needs to be some randomness some cacophony some mixture of things that don't go together for you to actually begin to pull some things together in yeah. this process yeah well think about if i say I mean, for me, for sure. And I, I suspect for a lot of people, but like when I'm teaching, you know, like I, I, like my favorite modality for teaching is what I call the walking dance. Mm -hmm. And like, you can just get people walking around and then I say, you know, you know, notice your breath happening. It's nice because you don't have to try. It's just happening. So notice your breath. If it changes because you're noticing, let it change. Don't try to breathe any particular way, right? So I say things like this, like things that bring people's attention to, to, and then we, you know, then I'm like, you know, surprise yourself with changes of directions. Like, well, what does that mean? Like, you know, that's so frustrating. It's like a cone. And then so people like walk around and they try to surprise themselves with their changes of direction. And then we circle up and I'm, and I say, Okay, so that was a laboratory, and let's share experiment, our observations from this, and everything, anything that happened, and, you know, that, that was part of your experience, whether you think it relates to the purpose of the exercise or not, let's just share it, you know, and because we're, we're just collecting information, right? It's not good, it's not bad, we don't have to agree with somebody else's experience, right? So then let's say you were in that exercise, and you were like, I just noticed that like my feet were like super hot on the ground. Right. And I was just like, wow, it's like my feet are really like hot as I'm walking. I can really feel the heat of my feet and it's not the floor, but it's like, you know, I'm sweating in my socks, you know? And I, so I hear that. Right. And I'm like, what did my feet feel like? Oh, my feel. And I didn't know. I did not know what my feet felt like until I heard you talk about your feet. But when you talked about your feet, I was like, Oh yeah, my feet are super dry. And actually I thought the floor was very cold. Totally different experience. Maybe I had the same one. Maybe I was like, my feet were hot too. But the yeah. point is what, what you were just saying, like, I don't, I have knowledge that I don't access unless something else happens yeah. Yeah. that makes right. me access right. that knowledge. 
Right. Let, let me just, I really like that. I, I like that mode of thinking. Um, thanks for taking us there in the discussion. It's so interesting. I, let me just remind folks that we're, you're listening to COVID calls. I'm talking to David Brick today. And um, David, you were kind enough to offer to share some performance with us today. And uh, that we should do it because I'm this, excited this, for this it. Conversation is going lightning fast already. Yeah, I know. I know. So, um, what I'm going to do is I'm just going to get out of the screen so you'll have the whole screen. And Can I talk for a couple minutes before I yeah. launch into performance? Okay. Yeah. I want to, I want to, I want to, I want to share a little bit about where this performance is coming from. Um, it's a performance I've never done before in any sense. I'm going to do it for the first time right right, right here. But I'm doing it that way because um, when you asked if I would do a performance side by side with what's been happening and what have other artists been doing, um, I thought about The Quiet Gathering, which I might have talked a little bit about before. Um, but also last year's HPI was this hybrid thing where we spent a lot of time on Zoom. And so... We made a lot of, so uh, one of the artists in the program right now is a, a choreographer by the name of Margaret Hemmings, Marguerite Hemmings. And, um, and she talks about wanting to make constant casual performance. I just love that term, constant casual performance. Her, I believe that she's talking about ways of like, like performing is happening. It's part of that. If what happens if you if you consider that performance can erupt at any moment or is already a part of anything going on and what what's intentional about that and I would say that that feels like an idea that has gained momentum in the pandemic and just think about all these zoom meetings where we're peering at each other's in, in, in our intimate homes, in our lot, you know, in kind of more, like when we come to the studio, we kind of come into a, a little bit of a neutral place. Like we're like, I leave my, my life and my world behind me and I come and I'm ready to dance with other people. And I'm a little bit, it's a little bit intent, you know, depersonalized. But the, the Zoom experience is like really like seeing somebody in their home, in their space. And then we do like making assignments that are like off the cuff and, and we share those, um, through the Zoom. And they've been just beautiful and exquisite. And these like instant performances that people are happening. I, I want to say what the structure of the quiet gathering is. So the quiet gathering was, um, a response to the beginning of the pandemic. Uh, some people were like, can we do this thing from the quiet circus, which was this community project that I did before that involves meeting and gathering and a kind of contemplative, contemplative activity. So I was like, I don't know if it maps on to a zoom space, <laughs> you know, but let's see. And this structure emerged where let's say we had six or seven people at the Saturday gathering. It would be one hour long. Um, it would start with everybody taking, introducing themselves by doing something about the space that they're in. You could either say, I'm on the third floor of my home in West Philadelphia. I'm looking out the window. I can see, you know, water dripping from the trees. Or maybe somebody would be like, say nothing, but they just like move their camera around to see, you know, you see their messy or clean 
very personal space that they're in. So it was just very quick, like person, 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 mm-hmm. person. And then we had a Quaker meeting where we were just silent in the Zoom space, which is funny <laughs> to just sit quietly and just like take a deep breath and don't necessarily talk unless you want to. And then if somebody feels moved to say something or share something, they share it. And then when there's like 10 minutes left in the meeting, everyone or 15 minutes left, everyone takes five minutes to go and make something or share, get something ready to share for no more than a minute. Right. That kind of arose during that time of of Mm. being with each other. Mm. So this is going to, the performance I want to do is kind of in the world of, what I, you know, I associate with Marguerite's um, idea of constant casual performance and some of the things that, um, like, people are just like, I'm going to try to find a way to share performatively in this space right here, right now, with what's arising. So, um, yeah, that's Amazing. that's what I'm going to try to do. Okay. Well, you have the. You have the square, you have the, what do we call it? I guess you have the, you have your floor and our screen. And uh, when you're done, I'll just, I'll come back. So I'm going to get out of the way. I'll make it clear. Yeah, I will say it's over. I want to share a poem that came up for me recently in a a story about Philadelphia in 1793. I'll start with the poem. Um, This is a poem by Wallace Stevens. Uh, It's about winter, winter coming and a desolation, I feel like. That's my feeling about it, a desolation of winter coming. And I just am really feeling that Home, even though I don't feel like winter's coming, but I, I feel like the carapace, the shell of me is about to crack open and fall out. Um, and I'm going to be released from, from it. Now it is September and the web is woven. The web is woven and you have to wear it. The winter is made and you have to bear it. The winter web, the winter woven, wind and wind. For all the thoughts of summer that go with it in the mind, pupa of straw, moppet of rags. It is the mind that was woven, the mind that was jerked and tufted in straggling thunder and shattered thumb. It is all that you are, the final dwarf of you, that is woven and woven and waiting to be worn. Neither as mask nor as garment, but as a being, torn from insipid summer for the mirror of cold, sitting beside your lamp for the citron to nibble and coffee dribble, frost is in the stubble. <sighs> I want to tell um, a story uh, about um, Richard Allen, 
and uh, Absalom Jones and Nicholas Biddle. Um, Richard Allen, uh, and this has to do with the 1793 yellow fever epidemic in uh, Philadelphia, where 10% uh, of the population of Philadelphia died and 40% um, of the population of Philadelphia fled the city within the first couple couple months. Um, uh, this is a um, It's a story about refuge, I think. So um, this is Richard Allen, Richard Allen. And uh, this is Absalom Jones. And um, they founded something called the Free African Society. And I'm also gonna tell the story about Nicholas, Nicholas Biddle, who was, uh, um, Uh, what will I say about Nicholas Biddle? Um, Nicholas Biddle was one of the most significant figures to shape U.S. economic strategies in the early 19th century. Uh, president of the Second Bank of the United States, Biddle was a one-man Federal Reserve before the institution existed. Um, so when the, when the uh, pandemic, the yellow fever pandemic happened, um, a lot of people died. And uh, Biddle um, lived through that experience with his family. And he Oh, I don't know what happened. I hope I'm back. Um, I said I was I was off for a minute, but I I hope I'm out. Am I back? You're back. Scott? You were off. You were off screen for just seven, seven, eight seconds. Oh, okay, great. Well, I'm talking about Nicholas Biddle. When Nicholas Biddle, uh, uh, who, um, you know, he 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 was a uh, one of the first economic thinkers around, you know modern U.S. monetary policy. Um, so he was rich. Um, and he, uh, in the, uh, after the yellow fever academic, he, he was like, I need to build a mansion way up the Delaware River so that my family is, um, uh, has refuge from this um, future pandemic. So he built this um, estate called Andalusia. Um, as a kind of a, a refuge. And then he could just take the boat to come into town um, uh, and not worry about getting sick. So uh, I think about that kind of refuge of privilege um, and walking away. Um, the, uh, the Free African Society, um, they volunteered. There was this idea 
um, going around uh, that uh, black people, because they had some resistance to um, malaria, that they would also have um, resistance to um, the yellow fever, which just wasn't true. But um, the African, the Free African Society offered to uh, uh, be nurses for uh, and take care of the dead and bury the dead because other people wouldn't touch them. Now, of course, um, they died in high numbers because of that. Um, uh, and then the last thing that I will uh, share about that has to do with um, the aftermath. So these are just some things I'm thinking about. Um, uh, and I'll, I'll just read this from Wikipedia. Um, after all their work, Allen and Jones wrote a memoir about the events which they published the following year, a narrative of the proceedings of the black people during the late awful calamity. They were trying to set the record straight and defend themselves against an accusatory pamphlet published by Matthew Carey after he had fled the city for much of September 1793. Matthew Carey accused blacks of charging high prices for nursing, taking advantages of taking advantage of whites and even of stealing from them during the epidemic. His pamphlet was entitled A Short Account of the Malignant Fever. Allen and Jones noted that it was whites who charged high rates for nursing during the crisis. So I couldn't help but think about the parallels to our own moment of um, information and misinformation. Who's sacrificing and, and who's not. The end.
so that's um yeah that's a, like you know these are the kinds of performances i've witnessed a lot of <laughs> in the last um uh in the last two years of people just pulling stuff off their desks sharing stuff that they're thinking about pulling in some aspects of you know like i want to do something with sign language and hands i was like mm-hmm. oh maybe this will turn into a, a hand dance i don't know following intuition it's an improvisation right working with this camera you know i found a flower on my desk and i was just like i'm just gonna use it it seemed to fit right so then as part of these performances we have a conversation about what we saw what came up right yeah. and then if we were to have this meeting again i'd be like maybe i actually go work on that a little bit and try to integrate something about um the Free Africanist Society with, uh, and Thomas Biddle's refuge of Andalusia, you know, with, with something about speaking, not speaking, yeah. these ideas of refuges of privilege, refuge of meditation and personal refuge. And, you know, it's like, yeah. like holding these similar, seemingly dissimilar things in, in a place, but just by sharing them with one another, one another, they start to, they start to have weight. They start to, something starts to be born. David, thank you so much for sharing that here. That's really great. And, um, and special that you shared it here. And and I want to, there's something about it too. um, Connecting, drawing back to some of our conversation from earlier. So I, I've seen a lot of, a lot of dance. I've seen you perform many times. Um, when I was a kid, you know, the dance that we were exposed to was ballet. It was in a big concert hall and it was at a huge distance. And they would take us kids, you know, to Fort Worth to see the ballet because that was, and I, I, Hey, I'm glad they did, you know, but it was the sense like, okay, expose kids to culture. And that's what we got with dance. But when I first saw headlong perform and other choreographers perform and dancers perform in the nineties in New York and Philadelphia, what immediately struck me was the sound of feet and bodies moving and and that the physicality you're watching it but you're you're even if you're in a small enough black box you're feeling it experiencing it and when you're doing the with the arms i was seeing that and i saw what you were doing with your arms but somehow it triggered me and i was right back in a place see listening to dancers feet move on a floor mm, mm. So it had this for me. It had this teleportive capacity. You were in the box, but it took. Could you hear? Out. Could you hear the scratching? Yeah. Oh, yeah. great, great, great. Yeah, yeah. And I don't, I, I don't know if that's what you were going for. And for me, I guess I care, but I kind of don't. Like it took me somewhere I wanted to go too. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm like I'm trying to get at a visceral thing. I kind of wanted to turn the camera around and move around and dance, but I was like, ah, it's already gone on so long. What can I do right here, right now? That's visceral and a little bit painful. I want to, I want to, I want to hurt a little bit. I want to, I want to think about pain, and um, so I, I scratch. You know, it's very intuitive. Um, but I wanted, yes, also like, how can I get my body or a feeling of bodies through this, this tiny little pinhole, you know, and, in you know, into your body, you know, I definitely was like feeling that. And, you know, Headlong's work has always been like, we care that it's a visceral experience for people that, yeah. 
everyone's body feels implicated um, as opposed to something that sits apart at a safe distance that's like pretty to look at you know it's like Andrew, Andrew, Andrew Simonet, um, my collaborator in Headlong would always say, pretty is the enemy of beautiful, <laughs> you know? And so, you know, kind of foregoing the virtuosic, you know, wow, for the like something that actually people can maybe relate to. We always were like, we'd rather make work that people, you know, we could, one of our tags was dance you can do at home. Something that felt like mm-hmm. my body can do this. Like, like this is not meaning that just exists in some rarefied body, but this is meaning that I can play with myself. I can, I can, yeah, can, can I touch something in my own, you know, sensorium that gets meaning going. Well, the way you work the, the poetry in also, you know, it speaks to, I think this totally relatable experience that people have had in the pandemic of confinement and, so periods of confinement and then resistance to confinement. And it's not over. It, you know, I mean, I think, I mean, where I am in, in Korea, it's the worst of the pandemic that we've had. We're not on lockdown, but there's a confinement aspect to it. So, you know, it's not like those things that you're sharing are now relegated to some past history of disaster. And aren't we glad we're through with that? I, there's some worry to that too. I think we're going to carry this with us for a long time. That memory yeah. of that con- being confined and breaking loose as a as a duality that's not mm-hmm. over. I think I totally I, I hadn't really thought about that. As soon as you said, I'm like, yeah, yeah, the the like confined breaking free, and then the sense that at any moment the door could close again, which didn't happen the first time around, but we all feel it right now. By us all, I mean, in the cohort that I'm working with, like, I feel like that that's palpable. I'll also say that another thing that seems to be more front of mind or front of body around working in these times is that, um, I'm the feeling that like things are hard and maybe things were hard before the pandemic started. (laughs) And like, I've been really grateful for the, you know, some of the amazing artists that I've been able to um, work with through the headlong performances. They just, they, they compelled to just talk very honestly and kind of set boundaries and be like, I'm exhausted. I think I can only do half a day today and I have no good reason for it. <laughs> and everyone being like, thank you for saying that. And that's all being like, yeah, things are hard. It's hard just to show up. And we're so grateful to show up. And now I'm, you know, and you said something similar to me the last time we talked. You're like, yeah, things are, things are hard. And, um, I was like, yes. And something about, that feels meaningful to me that people are acknowledging that. And it's not just the pandemic, you know, it's like the pandemic has like maybe pushed some of us to a tipping point. We're like, yeah, we're living in a world that has a steep cost, steep cost, even when it's going the way it's supposed to go. We're about out of time. I just want to take a second here at the end to encourage people to find you and find Headlong Performance Institute. And you you shared with me last time we talked that um, 
actually one of the t- the talking performance you did with Ishmael was inspiring to some people who were like, okay, I'm I'm in, and actually came and found you after that. Yeah, a couple couple of the artists in the program right now were like that really spoke to them and they got in touch and they're in the cohort now and they're doing amazing, amazing, beautiful work. Yeah. If you want to, if you want to find us, look for the headlong performance Institute. Um, you can Google that. You can also Google headlong.org is, is headlong, the website. That's not the training program, but, but our company, our arts organization is www.headlong.org. And some of my writing um, uh, is in a blog that I kept for a project called The Quiet Circus. So you can look for uh, thequietcircus.com. Okay. I hope everybody will find all of those things and get in touch. And for now, for us, uh, this will have to do, but um, this is a hell of a lot better than nothing. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me, Scott. It's <laughs> meaningful in so many ways. Yeah, yeah, you've been yeah, so generous to COVID calls, David. I think we're going to look back on this as a as an important collaboration. I mean, I think the three the three moments would be really important, and I'll take that if as a. If yeah, people are yeah. in New York, so in April, Eiko and Eiko Otake, Google Eiko Otake and her performance at the Skirball Center in um, April uh, uh, with Ishmael Houston Jones. You want to see those two? incandescent incredible artists like in one place i'll I'll tweet that out on social media and um we'll try to promote that and i can't wait to i won't be able to be there but i want to try to hear all about it because i think the world of the three of you and of course um your generosity as an artist um before the pandemic and through this is just like sort of legendary so um david (laughs) thank you thank you scott thank you so much We'll see you next time on COVID Calls, everybody. In fact, the next COVID Calls episode starts in just a few minutes, and I will be talking to my father.